0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The father and daughter duo of Rashid Haladi and Dima Halidi are taking on a tough topic. They'll speak on Saturday about the prospects for peace and justice in Palestine. The U.S. position towards Palestinians is hostile. In just the last week or so, the U.S. has zeroed out funding to the U.N. agency that provides relief to 5 million Palestinian refugees. The U.S. kicked the PLO mission out of Washington, D.C. The Department of Education reopened a seven-year-old case that suggests boycotts of Israel on college campuses create a hostile environment for Jewish students. And the U.S. threatened the International Criminal Court with sanctions if it took up the case of thousands of Palestinian protesters who've been shot in Gaza. Rashid Halady is a historian and professor of modern Arab studies at Columbia University. And Dima Halidi is the founder and director of Palestine Legal. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks, Jerome. Thanks, Jerome. Um, Rashid, what is the strategy here of the United States here? It's, it's been coming down really hard on Palestinians. Um, and people are expecting this is kind of an entree to the deal of the century that is being drafted by Jared Kushner.
1: The deal of the century is like what a calf expects going into the slaughterhouse. I mean, it's not a deal. (laughs) I think that the Trump administration and the Netanyahu government want to take advantage of the current situation to basically end for once and for all what used to be called the Palestine question. And they want to end it on Israel's terms. The Israeli Knesset just passed in July something called a basic law, which is a law with constitutional force called the Jewish nation state law, which says that within the state of Israel, only Jewish people have the right of self-determination and that the land of Israel, Eretz Israel, is the national homeland of the Jewish people. And what is the distinction between them is becoming increasingly irrelevant as the state expands through annexation to encompass the entirety of what used to be called mandatory Palestine or In this terminology, Eretz Israel. So uh, we have now an Israeli constitution which says that basically there's one people in Palestine or Israel, however you want to call it, and that's the Jewish people. And there's no space for anybody else. And the administration has complemented this and complemented an Israeli argument to the same effect by saying there are no refugees or if there are, there are very few survivors from 1948. They're trying to redefine Palestinian refugees in violation of international law as applied to every other refugee crisis where refugees and their descendants are considered in international law to be refugees. In the Palestine case, they want to diminish the Palestinian refugee issue and, in effect, as part of this effort to liquidate the Palestine question and eliminate the Palestinians by saying that only those people who, in fact, were refugees in 1948 are refugees. And at the same time, as you said – um, the United States has cut all funding to UNRWA and has declared that UNRWA is part of the problem. Anwar perpetuates the refugee issue. The idea that the people who expel the refugees and prevent them from returning are not the ones who perpetuate the problem, but rather those who help to give them some hope by educating them. That the latter are the ones who um, are per- perpetuating the problem, well, would make she- Orwell turn in his grave. It doesn't
0: seem like there's a lot to be optimistic about. Is there a prospect for peace and justice? There there just seems to be the U.S. and Israel uh, doing these things, and they don't seem to be very good for Palestinians.
1: Well, I think that there's a couple things. First is that the United States and Israel are completely isolated internationally. Nobody's following them. Uh, This is the least respected administration in modern American history. I I actually can't think of one since the 19th century that has been so reviled internationally. Secondly, this is seen as nakedly partisan, and it represents a wing of the Republican Party. And many, many people, Democrats, uh, uh, liberal Jews, and so on, are harshly critical of what the administration is doing internationally generally, but in particular in regard to Palestine. And there's an awakening throughout the United States and in many other parts of the world. To the fact that the way in which the whole conflict has been traditionally portrayed, Israel is David and the Arabs are Goliaths, the Palestinians are just a bunch of ruthless, murderous terrorists, is completely false. It's completely bogus. I think what happened in Gaza is another encouraging sign in that you had a popular uh, initiative this march. Uh, Israel has ceaselessly tried to portray it as Hamas is doing this. Hamas is doing that because they 've succeeded in painting Hamas as terrorist and murderous, and so on but even 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 with the the p r success that Israel has traditionally had that's not that doesn 't wash so uh, uh, the final thing is the Palestinians have to do much more to get their act together. You have a g- decrepit leadership in Ramallah, you have a very a bankrupt leadership in Gaza on the part of Hamas. both have failed. And that is going to be an, an essential component of turning things around. But there are various elements in the world and the American Situation that actually are signs of hope or reasons for some optimism.
0: I'm talking with Rashid Holliday from Columbia University. He'll be in Chicago talking about the prospects for peace and justice in Palestine tomorrow at Alhambra Restaurant, along with Dima Holliday, founder and director of Palestine Legal. Dima, I wanted to talk about what the Department of Education did this week. They reopened this. Case that's seven years old and it's from Rutgers University. It suggests that uh, boycotts of Israel on college campuses create a hostile environment for Jewish students uh, and it seeks to basically redefine what anti Semitism is. Um, what's going on here?
2: Yeah, well, uh, to go back first to your question about what hope there is, what prospects we have for justice for Palestinians. I think the most important thing that's happening right now is the groundswell of support for Palestinian human rights, something that we haven't seen in in decades, if at all. So in the U.S., we're seeing this really dynamic movement, grassroots movement that is galvanizing people, that is uh, making connections with other social justice struggles. And things like the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement, have really gained ground and are are actually threatening to Israel's entire status in the United States. So what we're seeing now with the Trump administration, even as Trump is making all of these Moves uh, internationally. Domestically, he has appointed Kenneth Marcus to the Department of Education. Kenneth Marcus is a far right Israel ideologue, and he, has, he is now trying to do from inside the Department of Education what he has failed for years to do outside of the department, and that is to try to suppress campus. Activism, campus speech in support of Palestinian rights. So he's doing that now by adopting a, a, a redefinition of anti Semitism that encompasses in basically any criticism of Israel uh, in order to facilitate investigations of campus activism. And he's done this through the reopening of, as you said, a seven year old case that the Obama Department investigated for years and uh, concluded did not discriminate against Jewish students.
0: It's layered upon other anti-BDS movements. I was on your website that there's 25 states as of June that have anti-BDS legislation. I mean, obviously Israel has said if you're affiliated with BDS, you can't come into Israel anymore. We could we could deny you. There's there's all sorts of uh, action on this front.
2: That's right, and and we're seeing it more and more coming from the top, the grass top, so to speak. These arguments are really grounded on on this notion that any advocacy for Palestinian rights is anti-Semitic. And that's what we have to challenge here. We have to stop this conflation between criticism of, of Israel and its policies and anti-Jewish hatred. Kenneth Marcus has made a career of making this conflation, and uh, it's very dangerous that he is now in the power to adjudicate these kinds of cases based on this definition that has received so much opposition. Even its original author has said it would be unconstitutional to use it on college campuses to regulate speech.
0: Are you worried that free speech issues are going to be redefined in this era of a conservative Supreme Court? If we get a new Supreme Court justice and he's conservative, can you run the the, the freedom of speech up the flagpole and get a different result?
2: Well, what's concerning is that uh, freedom of speech has become less and less about our uh, individual speech rights are collective speech rights, and it's become more and more about corporate speech rights and the ability to maintain the status quo. So you see Republicans in the Trump administration attacking freedom of the press and attacking uh, the rights of protesters while, you know, trying to shore up the rights of the likes of Ann Coulter and uh, Richard Spencer to, to talk. So I think the, the fundamental purpose of the First Amendment to protect individuals from the interference of the government in our speech activities is is being turned on its head the right wing is exploiting it at this moment but we have to go back and and really think about how we've made strides in this country towards racial justice, towards all kinds of social justice issues. It's through mass mobilization, collective action. We have to have the rights and the space to engage in speech activities that challenge the status quo. So that's what we try to do at Palestine Legal, to to defend that space, to ensure that people are able to challenge what's happening in Palestine when our government is, is so complicit.
0: I was reading an essay on your website that you wrote after visiting the Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, the, everyone who's visited that I've heard, it, they find that a very powerful place that memorializes or the, the hangings of, of people in the South. How, how, did you, how do you connect that with what you're doing at Palestine Legal?
2: Well, I went with a delegation of other Palestinian lawyers and activists, um, and it was such a moving experience because it really illustrated how a group can really uh, reclaim a narrative and and bring forth the traumas that they have gone through, and what I think we try to do at Palestine Legal is protect the rights of people to to tell their stories, especially when they're faced with automatic accusations that their stories equal support for terrorism or anti semitism. This is what we're fighting against: the, this this effort to Entirely suppress, uh, silence, intimidate uh, people who are speaking out for Palestinian rights. People who are telling their stories about the Nakba, about what's happening now. So it was very moving to see an example of this done so thoroughly and so beautifully. You know, it's definitely inspiring, and I hope that uh, Palestinians can have a space like that to 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 share their story and and their traumas at some point.
0: Um, Rashid, do you think the narrative is becoming any clearer for people or uh, is that what is going on?
1: I mean, the thing goes back and forth, but uh, the pendulum swings. There are times when essentially Israel's actions tear the veil off of its, the the hypocritical lying veil off of its uh, behaviors. That happened during the 1982 war when it was perfectly clear what was going on to most Americans. Uh, Mainstream news media showed that the Israelis were bombarding a city. They killed tens of thousands of people, wounded 30,000 people. You couldn't cover that up. The same thing happened during the first Intifada. Uh, it was perfectly, perfectly clear that Israeli soldiers were shooting down unarmed protesters. It was clear also during the uh, recent marches in Gaza. And I think that, that that the fact that people are no longer as dependent on mainstream media, the fact that a lot of younger people especially are dependent on social media and alternative media, has helped... Uh, a, a narrative which is based on the kinds of things that Dima was talking about—people telling their stories. I mean, what happened to the Palestinians in 1948 is something known by every Palestinian. Our parents told us; we knew. Some of us are old enough. Don't the older people remember. People my age are, were told—you know—very soon afterwards. And everybody knows uh, uh, what's happening in Palestine is perfectly apparent to anybody who goes there. Those stories are getting out, and the counter-narrative that there are a bunch of murderous terrorists. That all they want to do is eliminate Israel, that they are motivated by blind Jew hatred and anti-Semitism. That false counter-narrative um, is, is really – I agree with Dima. It's challenged, being challenged fundamentally for the first time in my lifetime, in decades and decades and decades, systematically challenged in the public space. Not only in the mainstream media where that is beginning, but in other venues – uh, college campuses, alternative media, social media and so on. The, the kinds of places where younger people uh, are, are, are more likely to get information. And that's driving the other side crazy. I mean that's one reason we're seeing this hysterical offensive um, both by the Netanyahu government in Israel. And by the Trump administration and by, you know, uh, the, the right wing supporters of Israel in this country who have financed a massive campaign to push back at the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement to push back at these efforts, essentially by trying to shut down speech. Uh, they're not they're not saying we're going to get our narrative out there. They're going to say you can't speak. Only our narrative has has the right to be to be heard.
0: Rashid Halady is a historian and professor of modern Arab studies at Columbia University. Dima Holiday is the founder and director of Palestine Legal. And the father and daughter duo will talk tomorrow at Alhambra Restaurant on what the prospects are for peace and justice in Palestine. There's a Facebook page for it. There is uh, tickets at Brown Paper Bag. And it's been great talking with you both. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you, Jerome.
0: There's a new film out about the 2016 presidential election. We'll talk about American chaos after the break. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerrell McDonald. It's time for our film contributor, Milo Stalik, and today we are going to talk about a film about the 2016 presidential election. That film is American Chaos.
3: Our plan will put America first.
4: I don't think the people in blue states understand the people in red states at all. So I decided to go on the road and find out why people believe in this guy.
5: I don't know what kind of President Donald Trump will make. I want to hear from you guys. What, what do you guys think?
6: I've never heard anybody talk about illegal immigration like he has. Why do you have a lock in your house? You don't let people in there that you don't know. I want to know who's here.
7: What Obama has done with tearing down the police, it's despicable to me.
0: That's a clip from American Chaos, and film contributor Milos Stelic is here with me. Milos, I, I'm not sure how it's going to sound to people to sit around with Trump supporters for an hour and a half. How did you take that?
6: You know, uh, at first I took it badly <laughs> 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 because because I don't like listening to Trump supporters, especially when they're strident, as many of these are. But then this is a film that really grows on you, not in the sense that you get to like the people, but that you get to understand at least the root of some of the anger that really fuels them.
0: Filmmaker James D. Stern is on the line with us. Thanks for joining us, James D. Stern.
4: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Um, Why did you want to go out and spend all this time with Trump supporters back in 2016? How did you fathom this? You are actually a really successful film producer who who does a a bunch of different things that are Broadway-related, Hollywood-related, and you hauled yourself out and talked to Trump supporters in 2016 for months on end. (laughs)
4: That is true, and I'm not sure that uh, that it's necessarily what I that I like doing it. But I felt I felt a real urgency and need to do it. I felt that um, that you know living in Los Angeles now, having lived in Chicago and New York, I was particularly uh, uh, familiar with my own echo chamber, and um, and you know where where I was and with the people that I know, everybody was rooting for Trump to win the nomination because they thought he would be so much easier to beat by Hillary than, than the other candidates. When I was watching cable news and, saw, and seeing the ferocity of his of Trump supporters, and then watching cable news and seeing everybody just yelling at each other and talking past each other, I felt like there was a story that wasn't being addressed, which is really who these people were at that time. Um, you know, we can look back on this now and say, of course, you know, uh, we should have known, but that certainly wasn't the case then. And I think that I what I felt was from a historical perspective, would not? Wouldn't it be fascinating to be able to, you know, to go back into people's minds, you know, in all these different, you know, these different uh, elections, and have a real talking with people, and let them talk with their own voice, as opposed to, uh, you know, talking for them or or making my feelings or filmmaker's feelings really known before we start. Let them talk, and then and then let the interpretation come after, which is what I decided to do.
6: So what did you learn from them? I mean, because we see you in the film listening to them and then mildly kind of steering them aside, but at some level the kind of things which they say really represents minds that seem to be closed. So how did you, did you see an opening for opening those minds? I don't think
4: I actually did. Minds that could be open because I think that there's unfortunately, I think that the you know, one of the huge takeaways is that there's no longer the ability to be listening to the same set of facts that other people are listening to. And when I grew up, there were three stations and maybe public television, like you know, like your station, and you would, and you would hear the same facts, you could interpret them differently, but you'd hear the same facts today. That's completely different especially when you have something like Fox News, which is really just uh, you know a part of the Republican Party itself, people can really seal themselves off. So what I learned was that um, that not so much that they can be changed, but that we have to do our level best to empathize with what their situation is that got them to this uh, to this point, that the unemployment in West Virginia or to really truly understand, the immigration issue, which I did not understand, no matter how much I listened to uh, uh, television and radio, I didn't understand what was really happening in Arizona until I got there. And I think that to to, to hear them and to try and be uh, to hear them with a certain with a certain amount of grace, I think can be beneficial in trying to run other campaigns and to govern the country. It doesn't mean that those people are necessarily going to switch gears. Certainly. If there are people on the fringes, then, you know, uh, then they can. But certainly, certainly the people that were deep into uh, Trump's base, probably not so much so.
6: So a part of it, and you address some of this in, I think, the tech guy that you, who's very articulate, whom you have in the film, who says, which I found kind of interesting, is that democracy is fundamentally about acceptance of multiple viewpoints. And I found that phrase, like, very succinct because, in a way, this seems to be the fulcrum on which we which we are failing.
4: Absolutely right. Uh, Ramesh, the professor from UCLA who who says that is exactly right in his fear, and he's an expert in, in in analyzing Facebook and other and other um, uh, areas of, of social media. What he says is that is that social media and uh, and Fox News, but social media particularly is giving people a chance to not. Listen to uh, opposing points of view, and once you get to that point, you are in a real mess. And I think that we are at a, at a focal point in in, uh, in the country's history. I think we haven't been this divided, uh, you know, in a hundred years. And I think that it's. I think it's. I think we need to spend some time to think about how we can listen to other people and how other people will, you know, need to listen to us. And I think if that if that's not the case, I think that every every one of these elections is going to be just you know, a war of of who can get their people to the polls. And then once you do, the question is, can you govern? I mean, Trump has been successful in governing, not because of Trump, but because he he controls the House and the Senate. In 2016 and 2018, the House flips. Things are going to get very, very different for him.
0: We're talking with James D. Stern. He's the maker, filmmaker behind American Chaos, a new film about Trump supporters in the 2016 presidential election. He talks with a whole bunch of them. Um, did you model your film in particular on any other film that is a documentary of people talking at the camera?
4: You know, I really didn't. I guess possibly a little bit of Sherman's March, but mostly not. I think that in fact I was trying to actually uh, model it completely uh, in the other way, going completely uh, sort of away from Michael Moore's uh, style. I think that I was sort of Maybe uh, reverse modeling, because Michael is brilliant at what he does, but but the movies are all about Michael and not about the people he's talking to at the end of the day. And I think that I thought that it would be interesting to try and go in a different direction. So I think I probably took what Michael was doing and tried to um, flip it on its side a bit.
6: So, so the point at which you really saw, because all of your friends were t- uh, thought that Trump was going to lose, but at the point that you really began to see this that this may not necessarily be true, that he might actually win, is I think when you say that passion is trumping pragmatism. So people are really not listening to the issues, but it's that emotional thing. So what did you read in this?
4: Well, you know, I I made a movie called So Goes the Nation a while ago um, about the Bush versus Kerry, and I became. Uh, friendly with Mark McKinnon, who was sort of the genius behind Bush's reelection campaign. Mark, t- at the time, said, "We know," he said this to me. "We know the Democrats have, have us on the issues, but what they don't understand is that we have them on wanting to belong to a club. And if we can sell, you know, what we do in the same way that Nike sells shoes, or you know, which is to say, basically join join the club that you know that we represent." We're going to get more. We're going to we're going to get these people despite the issues. And I think that um, I think that was sort of the core of what this whole election was about. And I think the Republicans are much more effective at that at the end of the day. than the Democrats are. And, and at the end of the day, that's something that they understood and that they spoke to as opposed to the specific issues. Democrats will sit back and say, why don't people in West Virginia understand that the coal industry is not coming back and therefore, you know, uh, they should be for clean energy, and, the, and we can help them with that. But that's not the way the Republicans are running things. And I think that until the Democrats really have a more deep understanding of that, they're going to continue to lose presidential elections.
0: Well, the club that the people are joining in the Republican Party is—is is it fascism? It's—it's it's, if it's not about the issues, it's about what?
4: I think that fascism is a bit of a strong statement for what. For I don't think they think of it that way. I think what they think is it's about this sort of um it's about going back to a you know in america where they were where uh white america was dominant where um it was sort of this weird kind of like glossy ideal of what post war america looked like when there was when um when there weren't minorities when america was was expanding when everybody was around the world only looked up to america and i think that it's i think that they feel like at that point, they, you know, in their in their mythology, that they have um, a higher standard of where they are in the world, and I think that today they have this feeling of being displaced. They have a feeling that that uh, uh, that, that non Caucasians will become the majority in America. That's very frightening. Um, you know, what does that do for their own uh, job sec- security, et cetera, et cetera? And I think that when people are threatened, they tend to. A lot of find scapegoats, which which leads you to the immigration issues and terrorism issues and all sorts of things. So I think that you know fascism is a, is a strong word, but I think that certainly this uh, false ideology of going back to an America that they think is as the ideal is, is is central to it.
6: Well, and fear and anger, resulting in anger, a lot of the kind of driving forces behind what the people are saying, because very often they're, they're quite virulent in what they say.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I mean, sometimes they said outrageous things. I mean, you know, uh, Democrats are like Gaddafi. They want to cut your head off. Hillary Clinton is, you know, guilty of treason. You know, she should be put to death, essentially, is what it said. And um, at one point and um, and uh, uh, and one out of every eight people in the country is voting fraudulently. They're all voting for the Democrats. Those are, you know, those are are, are outrageous statements and, and statements that are brought on by the fact that they can only uh, be getting information from a very specific source, which is which is what they want to hear.
6: But you don't let the Democrats or Hillary Clinton off the hook because if there's a conclusion or narrative in your film, it's that she also made some really serious mistakes.
4: She made some horrible mistakes. You know, you can't. You know, she she should know better, especially after Mitt Romney made a very similar mistake in the calling. Half of Trump's support is deplorable. She should have known that would be a rallying cry. Um, also, not campaigning fully into, uh, into places where blue collar Americans, you know, were uh, not going to Pennsylvania, not really going to, um, you know, to Michigan. Th- those were those were big mistakes, and also just a general sort of not having the same level of authenticity that Trump did, despite the fact that you know we think his authenticity is is, uh, is a vile one. You know, it was a real problem. I think that a different candidate beats Trump in that election, but she wasn't but she wasn't that candidate. At the end of the day, despite all of it, without James Conley, she probably still even wins. I mean, that's how much things were really in her favor. I mean, Barack Obama was leaving office at a 60 percent approval rating.
0: How are you feeling about the next election cycle? You were just saying a minute <laughs> ago that you think he could get a, a reelected?
4: Uh, I did not say that he could get reelected. I, I would not say that. I think that in fact, um, first of all, I think, I think in 2018, the Democrats will take the house. And I think that I don't think that we'll take the Senate, but I think it will, it'll be very close. And if there's an upset, say with, uh, with the you know, possibly upsetting Cruz in Texas, um, it's possible to take the Senate. I think 2020, we can't know until we know who the democratic candidate is. Um, obviously Trump will be running on the engine of the economy, which, which, if it remains strong for another year and a half, will will make him stronger. At the same time, we have to remember that that Hillary did get uh, three million more votes than than he did, and and she lost Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, and Michigan by a total of seventy seven thousand votes with um, with uh, James Comey throwing a Molotov cocktail into the election in October. So it's not like. You know, he he ran through her. I think the narrative now gets a little bit frantic. I think we have to sort of sit back and think, this is a very winnable election in 2020. Um, and much more importantly until then is, is what happens in November right now.
0: James D. Stern is the creator of the new documentary American Chaos, which opens today. It's at the AMC Theater. Miloš Stelic is our film contributor. Thank you both for joining me.
6: Thank you, Jerome. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Coming up after the break, we'll have Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. We will focus on music and some of the offerings from the World Music Festival and on an effort to compress 100 years of Englewood's musical history. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
8: Thanks for tuning in to WBEZ Chicago 91.5 FM. It's about 20 minutes until 1 o'clock. We've got Science Friday coming up at 1. That is all right here on Chicago's NPR news station. WBEZ is supported by Steppenwolf Theater, presenting its 2018-2019 season, featuring seven plays, including Downstate by Pulitzer Prize winner Bruce Norris and Familiar by Denai Guerrera. Learn more about ticket packages at org. Support also comes from Comcast Business. Comcast is building a gig speed network providing small businesses across the country with the opportunity to dream gig. Learn more at dreamgig.com. Comcast Business, built for business.
7: You're listening to WBEZ, your NPR news station. This is your place for news, local, national, and international. On WBEZ, you hear honest and trustworthy voices from all over Chicago and from across the world. You hear real stories, important stories, and it's all made possible by listener support. That means listeners just like you who donate to WBEZ and provide the majority of the funding that keeps you informed. That's the listener-supported WBEZ Difference
8: worldview on WBEZ is supported by India House, introducing Bombay Chopsticks, specializing in Indo-Chinese fusion cuisine, which combines Chinese dishes and Indian-style cooking. Located in Hoffman Estates, more at Bombay BombayChopsticksChicago.com. It is 1241. We've got 81 degrees highs today in these low 80s with sunny skies. This is WBEZ.
0: This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend Nari Safavi is here with suggestions on places you can go and things you can see and hear. Nice to see you, Nari. Narvi. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here. Where are we going first? Well,
5: it's September in Chicago and the fall is in the air officially starting next weekend, next Friday. And, uh, we are, you know, the world music festival is in gear right now doing some really fantastic stuff. Uh, and one of the one of the big starts of them this weekend is going to be actually the musical celebration of El grito the Mexico's Independence Day happening as a part of the world music festival as an all star lineup of mexican oriented artists from Canada from Mexico, and United States coming to the Pritzker pavilion in the millennium park on Michigan and Randolph.
0: And that's on Saturday at 3 p.m., the musical El Grito celebration of Mexican Independence Day, all part of World Music Fest Chicago, which is... Ongoing, which is always free. People can go to the website and check out more information about it. And our next suggestion is also related to World Music Fest Chicago. Exactly.
5: A global peace picnic uh, with musical performances as a commemoration of the International Peace Day. And that's happening on Sunday, this weekend, September 16th, from 2 to 6 p.m. at the Humboldt Park Bo- Boathouse on North Sacramento Boulevard. It's a really a fantastic little park area of uh, Chicago in Humboldt Park. Uh, For people who have not been there, there is a really interesting edifice right by the lake over there in the middle of the park that uh, overlooks the water, and it's a great place to hang out and think about peace and and listen to some uh, global performances.
0: There's going to be Grammy-nominated artists there from Colombia, Ecuador. Um, the New York-Colombian artists, uh, Combo Chimbita will be there. And that sounds terrific. It's uh, Sunday, September 16th from 2 to 6 p.m. And that's a celebration of inter- the International Day of Peace. And the U.N. International Day of Peace is not Sunday. It is technically... On Friday, September 21st is the day, but there's events that are happening all week long, and people can probably tap into a great peace event near them if they just go on Facebook and put in International Day of Peace. There's There's a slew of them.
5: Yeah, and after you've gone to Mexico at the Pritzker Pavilion and you have gone to the International Peace Day, you can also go to Turkey this weekend. The Turkish festival is going on. It started last night. I know that you were there at the Daily Center. And I'm a regular to... attendee. Exactly. And there will be and it will be going on this weekend until Saturday until six PM with all kinds of musical performances and I understand that they even had a fashion show where women were dressed up as the women in the harem in the Turkish harem. <laughs>
0: There, uh, it's ongoing all day long. There, there, there's what? shows going all day long. There's beautiful ceramics. I, I buy ceramic bowls there all the time from this vendor. I'm friends with him. I ask him how he's going, doing. I see him every year. He comes from Turkey <laughs> to do this. And, and there's cool. a, a guy with gigantic mosaics that are like two by three uh, beautiful things, uh, beautiful felt clothing. Uh, it's unbelievable. Absolutely.
5: Yeah, well, it's, a, it's another really cool thing to, to check out this weekend, global Daily, event.
0: Daily Plaza uh, through tomorrow.
5: Through tomorrow, exactly. Yeah.
0: And finally, we go to our feature yeah. today.
5: Yeah, and last but not least, uh, we're talking about an event going on, Called Quantum Englewood. We're going to Englewood in our ju- uh, next step of our journey. And it's a hit journey through 100 years of Southside musical history. And uh, none other than our good friend Rahul Sharma is one of the people involved with it and organizer. So he's here with us.
0: Rahul is the founder of the band Daisy, and also with us is Rashida Phillips. She is deputy director of the Old Town School of Folk Music. She's emceeing the Quantum Inglewood event. Nice to see you, Rahul, and Rashida, great to have you.
7: Great to be here.
0: Thank you for having us. Tell me the story of this thing, Rahul. You're, you're, I, I bumped into you last summer, and you were talking about doing this, and you were excited about it, and you were able to uh, get me excited about it.
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. So it was a Joyce Foundation Award that was give, that was awarded the Old Town School of Folk Music. Ball Graves, Ude Joshi put together uh, this idea of having Ernest Dawkins and myself co-compose a piece that, again, is based on the musical and culturally, cultural history of Englewood and to also in the endeavor try to engage as much Youth And as much folks from the community and in support of the community as artists, Uh, it was part, it is part of what uh, uh, hopefully Rashida will talk about a little bit, this Music Moves program that Old Town is doing with various communities. And uh, basically, we wanted to put, celebrate Englewood and, and put multiple genres of music together in this celebratory performance.
0: And the volume of people you're doing this with, um, Rashida, is impressive. Uh, explain what that. How many people we're going to be hearing? We're going to play a clip of this soon. And, and it they, you're using lots of uh, people singing lots of instruments
7: that's right it's multi-dynamic I'd say we we're hoping to get up to a couple of hundred and I say that because we have flexible groups in there we have limblum choir for instance got a couple of football players with a game tonight
0: <laughs> uh, go Bloom,
7: they're yeah gonna. and they're gonna hop in there Hallelujah. on Saturday and join the choir so that's very exciting a lot of moving pieces I think involved Uh some gospel in there, some jazz, blues. We've certainly got Ernest kind of leading the pack. He has an event, the Inglewood Jazz Festival, that's happening just prior to this event Saturday night. Got some MCs from the MC school we've got drummers, dancers, the whole lot. So we're just thrilled to be uh, working with Ernest and Raul on this project. You know, the greater vision I think of Old Town School is to work authentically in the in the neighborhoods. And we've done some work the past couple of years with our Music Moves program, which centers artistic practice sort of in the middle of community wellness. So some of those projects we're working with young people who we call arts activators. We're working with smaller organizations and authentically partnering with them to build capacity and resources throughout Englewood and throughout South Side and some of the West Side as well.
3: Rahul,
0: what does this end up sounding like?
3: Well, it's funny should, that you asked that. Should, should we take yeah, a to this. let's take a listen. And by the way, I just want to, before we do, I want because I, I I went to Ernest's and his Live the Spirit um, uh, uh, Residencies Jazz Festival, Englewood Jazz Festival, and it's fantastic. And the weather's going to be great. It's going to be That's Hamilton right. Park all day and that's going to be around the corner from Quantum Englewood at Lynn Bloom at eight o'clock at night. But yeah, to your point, um, try to squeeze it down to a playable amount of time, but uh, it's hard to put the 10 genres together, but just giving you a flavor through this audio clip, hopefully of some of the things we'll be doing.
7: Imagine seeing my son lift up his brothers, my daughter get in the ring before being that baby's mother. Finding a husband before finding a lover Jumping over a broom before hopping under a cover That's mother singing the blues I got stories to tell
6: But who gonna hear my cry? If you hear me well
7: You won't be asking why
2: Young is on the corner, money hungry, looking for bread Gotta make their own way out here just to get fed Selling links so they can buy some shoes just to go out Packing heat for others, but they be the ones to go out
3: It's hard to eat, it's hard to breathe, it's hard to leave It's hard to see, it's hard to move, it's hard to sleep Yeah, the baby need a pair of shoes And I got a stun of fools, he be like Cute show. it's about that, dude
0: That was a sample of the genre hopping piece Quantum Inglewood <laughs> coming your way on Saturday at 8 p.m. in Lindblom Auditorium in West Inglewood. Wow. And that, uh, the singing was terrific. The rapping was terrific. Yeah, it was great I, I was stuff. really enjoying uh, everything. Well, I,
3: if we could give a shout out to, because, you know, uh, Ernest Ensemble, Live the Spirit Ensemble, Funkadaycee. Are two of the house bands, but who we are engaging, Fernando Jones, Blues Kids. He has a wonderful blues camp, but we heard the likes of uh, spoken word artist Tony Mano, Artemis, a little hip hop from Phenom, uh, our own drummer Kwame Steve Cobb, his daughter Amina Love was singing there. The great Maggie Brown was in there. So there's a cast of a lot of folks. Daughter of
5: Oscar Brown That's Jr. That's correct. Yes, yes. Yeah. Daughter of Oscar Brown Jr. Not that you. she's not great in the at Yeah, all, right, right, right. right, right. Yeah. But
3: we, can, we hear a, a legacy, a yeah. familial theme of, 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 of royalty in the uh, Chicago music world.
5: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Rahul, you've, uh, you've been uh, associated with, uh, you're a founder of Funky Daisy, which is really one of the original global sounds, world music kinds of uh, ensembles uh, based here in Chicago. And uh, when you approach Englewood and you approach to trying to put something like this together, where did you find inspirations for this uh, from? You know, it's uh, it's a really uh, – uh, I'm just wondering, you know, how yeah. you took upon that, trying that's to put all a, that's this That's a together. great
3: question. I mean, it was such a tremendous honor. In the
5: interest of creative process. Yeah.
3: So- you know, I I didn't grow up in the neighborhood. Right. Uh, I come from a different, uh, right. you know, cultural context. But my entree into Englewood was our late great drummer Baba Meshach Silas, ah. who passed uh, over thirteen years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was blown away because he would I would walk into his dance class. He and his wife, the late great Mama Najiri Silas, uh, Najiri Sutton, excuse me, they would have their dance troupe. And I would see drummers lined up from age two to age 90. And he was very purposeful about using West African music as a means for uplifting the people. And he would talk a lot about the challenges that are happening in the community and identity, cultural identity, and the arts being inoculant to some of the strife and struggle that was happening in the neighborhood. So for me, we had that in common. I think Funk and DC sort of carries that thread of of what music means to us and and honoring our traditions.
6: Great,
0: um, Rashida, tell us more about the Old Town School of Folk Music and what they're doing in all the neighborhoods and trying to get neighborhoods and and music together.
7: Right, and and I think it's a. a- relationship that works on both ends old town school of music is really interested in opening the idea of community up so though we're sort of housed on the north side we're open to everyone here in Chicago and beyond. And it's really just such a pleasure to do more work on the South Side, uh, working with smaller organizations like I Grow, that's uh, housed in the Inglewood community. And sort of, they take a social so- service component, and we kind of come in there with some artistic practice uh, involving some drumming classes, dancing classes, things of that nature, and really empowering a lot of the young people and the community people on the block to come in and share in that work, grow in that work, and even be paid for that work. So I think we're doing a lot of interaction between communities there. The same with the West Side. We do some work, the Carol Robertson Center, working with early childhood and the Wiggle Worms programs, and really thinking about what our institution looks like outside of our walls. And Old Town is very serious about those efforts.
0: Rahul, uh, I imagine you were brought into this in part because Funkadaisy is blending so many kinds of music together on a regular basis for 25 years. Um, you, you, and that is your your thing. And I, that was what was it like blending, you know, all, 10 genres together in one thing?
3: Right. Uh, well, it's interesting because I think because of Funkadaisy, I have more of a mind to mix genres, whereas Ernest was... Coming from approach of an approach of at least initially, like let's start with this genre is going to be a specific movement. This genre might be connected to that movement, but it'll be a separate piece. So um, it was interesting to because I went like, well, well, no, we we can combine these three into one, and and <laughs> yeah. so I, I think it was and it was a great uh, learning process both ways. Um, but I where we are now, are you know we're doing the run through tonight, and we have the show tomorrow. Just super exciting to have every artist and every entity sort of be featured, and then slowly as the concert comes together, we all come together.
7: Yeah, and I think it's the honoring, right, of each genre and really being able to take a moment of pause and see okay, there's blues here, there's jazz here, there's Reiki here, and then kind of bringing it all together to culminate. Are you going to have a finale finale
5: jam
0: session too?
3: Well, I think people are just <laughs> going to have to come out and find out.
7: That's,
0: right. That's, right. That's in the, the
5: mystery, right? <laughs> <laughs> and and after
0: great. tomorrow's performance, uh, what do you do? Uh, what do you do with this piece? How do, Where do you, where does it go?
3: That's a great question. Yeah. I Ernest and I have thrown around a couple of ideas. I know, uh, you know, Bob, the executive director of Old Town, is talking about, like, look for other pop-up uh, situations. So, uh, I don't know, Ernest... An idea There's always out. the that's Pritzker right. Pavilion. I uh, think there we it's, go. It's yeah. open Hey, yeah. some anybody. You know, next summer and yeah, would would love to do that. I mean, Ernest talked about a musical, and I was like, huh?
7: There you go. Oh. Well, certainly we're documenting it as well. We'll have a website, our musicmove.org website, will feature video clips and music from this performance as oh, well. Oh, good.
0: Musicmove.org. That's uh, right. That's terrific. Well, it's been great having you, and good luck tomorrow wrangling this thing together with hundreds of performers and it sounds terrific Quantum Inglewood, it is coming your way tomorrow at 8pm at the Lindblom Auditorium in West Englewood Uh, Good luck, Rahul Sharma from Daisy and co-creator of this. And Rashida Phillips, deputy director of the Old Town School of Folk Music. She'll be emceeing the Quantum Inglewood event. Great to have you and talk with you about this event. Nari Safavi, have yourself a great weekend this weekend. I hope you'll uh, get out and do all this stuff. I'm counting on you.
5: It was a privilege to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Monday on Worldview, we are going to talk about the Brazilian elections. I think um, if anybody has been paying just a slightest bit of attention to the Brazilian ele- elections, you know that it is one of the wildest things going on on the planet right now. Lula was a front runner, but he's in prison, and he dropped out this week. The conservative candidate that became the front runner and was the Brazilian Trump got stabbed at an election event. Uh, we will talk about the Brazilian elections Monday on Worldview. Hope you can join us. We'll also be talking in Puerto Rican construction about all the weird verbiage from President Trump about the Puerto Rican death count uh, this week. Hope you can join us Monday for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, and Amber Fisher. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance and Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.